Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we are studying the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we've been walking through the gospel of Luke as a community. In this section of scripture, we're focusing in, we're invited to focus in on the good and beautiful kingdom that Jesus brings. Last week, we saw that this transforms our relationship with God. It transforms the way that we think about religion. And today, we're going to see the good and beautiful kingdom demonstrated in the area of authority and power, and specifically in power over the demonic. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 31, the setting Jesus has just left, his kind of opening speech in Luke, the people loved him, then they hated him and wanted to kill him, so he leaves Nazareth, and we pick up the action uh, as he leaves Nazareth. Verse 31, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. It was a nearby city. And he was teaching them there on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So just as in Nazareth, Jesus goes into a new city. He begins to teach. And people are in awe of the authority, the power, the weight that's on his teaching. Verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice that he, that pronoun he is referring to the demon. Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked the demon saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the man down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. Verse 36, and they were all amazed, and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about Jesus went into every place in the surrounding region. So as people heard about the teaching of Jesus and the power and the exorcisms of Jesus, uh, his fame is beginning to spread through the region. Verse 38, the scene changes. Jesus leaves the synagogue. It says he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon is going to become a key character in the life of Jesus and the story that we read in Luke. The way Luke likes to introduce main characters is to bring them in in a snapshot to give you a little glimpse of them and he's going to reintroduce them later. So here's our first glimpse at Simon, but I just want to point it out because he will be a significant character as the story develops. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So we see this opening kind of scene as he goes into a new city. He begins to teach. There's authority on his teaching. Uh, in the place of worship, some demon manifests. Jesus exercises the demon, moves there from the synagogue to Simon's, Simon Peter's house, prays over Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and this fever flees her. She's healed. 
So word gets out and the whole city brings all of their sick, brings all of their demonized to Jesus, right? And he prays and he ministers to them and people are healed and set free. Now, what I want to start us out by looking at is the nature of authority in this passage. It's a repeated phrase. You'll see it in verse 32 and in verse 36. Note that Jesus' teaching astonished the people for his word possessed authority. So as Jesus taught, and we'll see this consistently through the gospel of Luke, that when he teaches, there's weight, there's power, there, there's, there's umph, there's anointing, there's unction on his teaching. And people recognize that this is not just a normal teacher. This is not just a religious guy, but there's some power here in his teaching. But it's not just limited to his teaching. We see that that same authority is exercised as he casts out a demon. So look in verse 36. And they say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So we see this power in his word. We see this power in his spirit. There's power on his life. There's authority there. And this is important for us to see because in it, we see the nature of the good and beautiful kingdom of Jesus. When we talk about authority in the kingdoms of this world, when we normally speak of it, you've no doubt heard the phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Meaning when mankind, when people get into positions of power, maybe it's the leader of an organization, a boss, a politician, as their power and authority escalates, right, it tends to corrupt people. People tend to use power and authority poorly. They use it in ways that hurts themselves or hurts others. They use it to build themselves up and to take from others. When Stephen was talking about kind of the tax, that's what comes into our mind, right? A king usurping kind of uh, the lifeblood of peasants just to build his own name. And we're, we're shy about authority. We're fearful of authority. We're rightfully kind of, ooh, I don't know. People typically don't do well with power. And so we're, we're, we're reticent of authority. Dallas Willard, a USC philosophy professor and famous theologian, said this, the primary work of God is finding men, or men or women, men to whom he can entrust his power. And the story of most men is being entrusted with power and bringing harm to themselves and those under their care. Right? If you think about even the storyline of the Bible, it begins with God giving Adam and Eve power, giving them authority. They were free. And he told them to rule and have dominion, to name animals and exert authority in such a way that the world would flourish. But what do Adam and Eve do with their freedom and do with their power? They don't use it for the blessing of the world, right? They fall into sin. They choose rebellion with God in a way that destroys them and destroys their offspring. And you can trace through the Bible over and over and over again stories of kings and generals who even begin strong, begin well, begin loving God, who as they have power over time are corrupted and in the end fall, right? That's the way that we normally think about humans with power, in the way of the world. But note in the way of Jesus in the good and beautiful kingdom that Jesus is very different. 
We see here in this story, he who has power, who has authority, is not using his authority to take from people, but to give to them. He's using his authority to teach, to bless, to heal, to deliver, to restore, right? To bring about flourishing, to bring about life. Jesus uses his power, not kind of in these selfish, corrupt ways that we're so familiar with, but he uses it in a completely pure, holy, loving way to bring about blessing. It's a hallmark of his leadership. It's a theme that carries throughout the kingdom, and it's a theme that's meant to be embodied in the people of Jesus today. If you fast forward 18 chapters to Luke 22, Jesus says this about power and authority in the good and beautiful kingdom that he's bringing. He's speaking to his disciples and he says this, within minutes, they being the disciples were bickering over which one of them would end up the greatest. So towards the end of his life, he's got these disciples, they're all jockeying for a position about who's the best, who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus intervenes. And he says this, kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles, but it's not going to be that way with you. So kingdoms of this world, way of this world, if you're a king, man, it's all about you and your glory and your power and you kind of throw your weight around. Or if you're a boss or a leader, like to give yourself titles and have the respect of people. But he said, that's not going to be the way in my kingdom. My kingdom is very different. He said, let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. So a different use of power. That in the way of Jesus, we don't use our authority. We don't leverage our authority for our own good, right? But we leverage our authority to become a servant for the good of others. Thank you. We're about, we can end the service on this one. It's awesome. Jesus then says, who would you rather be? The one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? Obvious, right? I want to eat the dinner. You want to eat the dinner. He says, of course, you'd rather eat the dinner and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves. So Jesus didn't come, he said, didn't come to be served, but to serve. Completely different use of power. And it's beautiful. It's good. This is a mark of the kingdom. Now, we typically, uh, if we were to take this principle, this idea, this transformed use of power, and we were to apply it to our city, like Stephen said, our vision is that Dallas would be saturated with the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. Last week, we saw what it would do in the area of religion. What would it do in the area of leadership, in the area of power, if parents who had authority in their homes, used their authority in the way of Jesus to build up and to bless. If teachers who have authority in the schools, if they used their authority in this way, if they were servants to bring about blessing to their students, if administrators within schools or business leaders, bosses, uh, whatever profession or field of vocation that you're in, if your goal was not to build your own name, but to make those who, who work for you great, to make your customers and your constituents great, to bring about their blessing and prosperity. If you were a politician 
and your mindset was changed of just how can I get my name out there and build my platform and push my party through to, man, I'm a servant. And I want to use my leverage, my power, my authority to bring about blessing of others. Just think for a moment how much healing that would bring to our city. Think how much different the homes and the marriages and the families and the schools and the businesses and the politicians and the political realm. Just think what a difference that would make. I mean, it could move you to tears if you think about the power of just what that would bring. Right? And when we're around humans and the way kind of kingdoms of this world, we're, we, we kind of pull back from authority. It's like, how little can I give and still be okay? How much do I have to really honor my, my boss, but still, like, I, I don't want to, I, I don't trust him, right? I don't trust her. And we can bring that into our relationship with God, and we can kind of negotiate, well, God, I'll give you this aspect of my life. I'll give you this aspect of my life. I feel really out of control over here, so God, please help me with that. But these three areas over here, I kind of think I'd do a better job. I'm not really looking to, you know, quite, let me just see what the least I can get by with and still be okay, you know, and and be good, right? That's kind of what we're tempted to do. But when we get a revelation of this, when we get a realization of this, the question is not how little do I need to give to get by, like to be okay, and it's, man, what other areas of my life can I bring under the leadership of Jesus? What other areas of my life can I surrender to his leadership and his authority? What blessing, what, what, what healing, what prosperity, what renewal is that going to bring in my life and my relationships as I come under his leadership? Right? He's not using his authority to take from you, but he's trying to give to you and to me and to the whole world. And if we would just surrender and not say, God, I want to have power in my own name, but Jesus, your way is good. Your way is beautiful. I'm coming under. I'm getting in your kingdom. I'm following you. Wow. What healing would it bring to our lives? Completely changes the game. And we could stop the service right now just with a praise break at how good and beautiful Jesus is in this one regard that should take all our breath away. When you stop and think about it, it's like, oh my goodness. You're not a God that I need to try and keep stuff from, but you're a God that I can just freely give myself to because you're so much of a better leader than I am. You care more about my life than I do. God, How lucky am I? How blessed are we that we get to know you and come under your leadership? Man, this is a kingdom to be excited to be a part of. Woo! Come on. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. I want to read this quote from Timothy Keller that I've referenced before in this series that, again, just touches on the heart of this. He says this, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also, get this, Wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, 
but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. Man, that's good stuff. So now we see his power, the goodness and the beauty of it, and we see it specifically uh, in the realm uh, of, of driving out demons, that his kingdom has power over demons. So we're all good on the authority. We're like, man, that's cool. I, I like Jesus. I want to be on his team. When we're talking about authority and leadership. We start talking about demons. And it's like, oh, I don't even really know what to do with that. Zach, if you're like me, uh, before I got introduced to the way of Jesus, kind of my only uh, understanding uh, of demons was what I learned in horror movies, right? I didn't learn anything about it in church. I didn't learn anything about it in school. Uh, I did learn about it through horror movies, right? So my entire theology of the demonic came from like The Exorcist or Friday the 13th movies or fill in the blank on the horror movie uh, that was on at that time. And maybe you're in that same place. So it's like, I don't even really know what to do uh, with this whole demon thing. And I don't even know if I believe uh, in that stuff. You realize that if we were having this conversation uh, south of us, if we were in Latin America, or if you're from a a Latino culture, right? The idea of an unseen world with with spirits and evil evil spirits, totally normal to you. Totally, oh yeah, it's just the way the world works. If we were having this conversation, uh, if we go east into Africa, right? Or if you're from African heritage or or, or from family, uh, again, Totally normal. It's the way the world works. There's an unseen world, evil spirits, of course. If we were to move east into the Middle East and Persia, again, totally normal. Evil spirits, yeah, everyone knows that. You go a little bit further east into Asia, right? Same deal. The number one, the fastest growing religion in Japan is one that's centered on deliverance from the demonic, right? Totally normal. That's the way that the world works. We here... In, in parts of America and parts of Europe, right, we're some of the only ones that have a real problem with this. They're like, ah, is that really, haven't we kind of moved beyond that? Like, is that for today, right? And I understand that. And because we're having this conversation here, although we have people in our church from a wide variety of backgrounds, I think it's important to look at a handful of reasons why it's rational, why it's wise, why it's beneficial to you and I to actually see the world this way and to have a belief not only in the devil as kind of a symbol, but in the devil and demons as sentient beings at work in our world. I'm going to give you a few reasons. Number one, we needed uh, the testimony from philosophy. In the area of philosophy, we need this category of evil. We need a category of good and we need a category of evil that are outside of your opinion or mine or else what's right or wrong is just what you and your buddy decided. Well, I guess this is okay. And that person said, no, like it's just all humans kind of debating about right and wrong. But we need these categories that are outside of us, that are higher than us, that are a greater authority than us, that aren't just up to our opinion to have a healthy moral framework. That's what philosophy tells us. Andrew Del Banco, uh, he said, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. So from a philosophical standpoint, we need this idea 
of the devil and the demonic and evil to be able to adequately address morally our world around us. Testimony of science. I want to reference Scott Peck, Dr. Scott Peck, a famous psychiatrist, wrote a best-selling book called The Road Less Traveled, and he details uh, in his experience working with people kind of in a scientific, psychiatric setting, his encounter with the demonic that converted him into, yes, I believe that this is the way the world works. Let's read his testimony. He said, as a hard-headed scientist, which I assume myself to be, I can explain 95% of what went on in these two cases by traditional psychiatric dynamics. He's talking about two particular cases in his practice that he was working with. 95% I can explain purely through natural material causes. But I am left with a critical 5%, not a minimal 5%, a critical 5% that I cannot explain in such ways. I'm left with the supernatural, or better yet, the subnatural. When the demonic finally spoke clearly in one case, an expression appeared on the patient's face that could only be described as satanic. It was an incredibly contemptuous grin of utter hostile malevolence. I spent many hours before a mirror trying to imitate it without the slightest success. I've seen that expression only one other time in my life for a few fleeting seconds on the face of the other patient. So he said in his work as a scientist, he came in contact with situations which he said the only thing this could be described is demonic. So testimony of science, testimony of history. We are going to be hard-pressed outside of our cultural moment here in the West in kind of a secularizing America to find a culture in the history of the world that did not share this worldview of an unseen world with a spiritual realm. And it's important for us, lest we just kind of be arrogant and think everyone is like us, not to discount the testimony and the beliefs and the experience of most of human history, right? We'd be wise to consider, well, why, why are we some of the only ones that may not believe in this? Testimony number four, the reliability of the Bible. When we opened this series in Luke, we talked about that we're not reading poetry. We're not reading kind of a, a drama set to be a movie that some screenwriter wrote to tell kind of a moral story. This isn't a fable. No, this is history. These are historically reliable documents and experience. And so Luke, who's writing these stories down, is recounting historical fact. Another reason, as we read today, that we should believe in this. Last reason, all those first four, if you're not a Christian, I think those are good reasons for you to consider uh, the, the wisdom of believing in a demonic realm. If you're a Christian, this last one should just settle it for you. It's the worldview of Jesus. It's the way Jesus saw the world. It's the way Jesus sees the world. Right? If you break down Jesus' activities in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're going to see a life of prayer, this kind of pulling away, this solitude, this prayer. We're going to see it next week, but we're going to see it throughout the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see teaching everywhere he goes. He's teaching. We're going to see healing everywhere he goes. He's healing. We're going to see exorcisms everywhere he goes. He's casting out demons. We're going to see eating everywhere he goes. He's taking meals with people. And we're going to see he's training disciples everywhere he goes. Those six activities 
are repeated throughout this story, throughout his life, in all the Gospels. And so it's important for us to realize this is a key component of his ministry, a key component of his life. And so we're not trying to adapt Jesus to us. We're the ones that need to adapt to him. We're the ones that need to come under his leadership and his authority. He has the lock on truth, not you or I. So those are five reasons why I think it behooves us to believe in the demonic and to believe in the devil. Now, again, I realize most of us have been discipled by movies like The Exorcist or talking about demons, and we're like, what in the world do we actually mean by that? What does the Bible mean when it's talking about the demonic? So let's do two working definitions uh, and then a couple words of wisdom before we dive into the story a little bit deeper. Demons. Demons are corrupted angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. And if you're looking for a scripture reference on that, Revelation 12, 9, right? So you've got angels, demons are corrupted angels, sinned against God, and now they're at work for evil in our world. Satan is the head of these demons. And of course, we could go into a lot more in-depth theology on that, but just for this morning, that's enough to get us kind of all on the same page. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, gives us some important counsel as we're exploring this uh, topic. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, someone that doesn't believe in them, or a magician, someone obsessed with them, with the same delight. You get what he's saying? He's saying, hey, you can get too focused. You can, you can get so disbelieving of this. That'd make the devil happy, right? For you not to believe he's real. And at the same time, you can get too over-focused on this to where, man, there's a devil around every corner. My, my phone didn't turn on. It must be a demon. Uh, you know, I got a paper cut today. I need to cast that demon of paper cuts out of my paper. You know, just everything. Someone parked in my parking spot or your car won't start and you got to cast a demon out of the starter. You know what I mean? Like all this stuff. You may just need to get gas at the gas station. It'll help you out, right? So we can become over-obsessed, but we can also become ignorant. Most of us probably are more on the ignorant end and we're afraid of being the over-obsessed people. And so we just kind of live with our head in the sand. At least that's been my experience for most of us here in, in Dallas. So, with that as a backdrop, let's go back to our story and walk it through. So we're seeing his authority in action. We're seeing it in the realm of the demonic. So if you'll go back, starting in verse 31, or 33, rather. So he's there in the synagogue. He's there in the place of worship. Jesus is there, and he's teaching. And one of the things that we're going to see over and over and over again is that as Jesus is teaching, as there's worship going on, that the demonic is exposed. It's brought out. And I want to change your lens for why we're reading, as we're reading this story, remember Jesus is God's anointed king, right? He's bringing the kingdom of God. The earth is under the power of the devil. And so we're seeing a cosmic battle going on. Sometimes we think of Jesus as being like Mr. Rogers, and I don't have anything against Mr. Rogers, but Mr. Rogers never got crucified, right? It's not, well, won't you be my neighbor? No, Jesus is battling demonic forces 
And he's setting people free. He's redeeming lives. He's healing the world. And demons are coming out against him. This is a cosmic battle that's going on. And we see this demon cry out uh, in a loud voice. And that's a common mark that we're going to see throughout the Gospels, this kind of voice that comes out from demons that are calling out different things. I've experienced this in my own life. Um, and it was kind of my intro to all of this topic. Uh, when I was 19 or 20, I was a new believer. I signed up to work at a Christian summer camp that would bring in kids from all over America, from the worst neighborhoods in America. They'd bring them in for a week at the camp. I worked there eight weeks one summer and eight weeks uh, a summer a little bit later. And they would bring kids in for a week, and you'd play sports with them, and you'd teach them about Jesus. I was like, man, this sounds great, right? So I signed up, and I'm working there. And during the week that you had the kids there, uh, one, you know, each week you would have a, a night where you would do a drama. The camp would do a drama that acted out the trial of Jesus, the, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Someone would share the gospel and then invite kids to receive Jesus or receive prayer ministry, uh, just like we're going to do here in a little bit. So one week I'm there and I'm assigned to sit with my kids out on this tennis court. The drama was outside and I was to kind of keep an eye on the kids that didn't go forward for prayer. It wasn't the safest environment in camps. These were kids with some problems. And so part of what we were doing was trying to keep people from fighting in the midst of this ministry time. So I'm sitting there and I'm noticing in the ministry time uh, after the gospels and preached, one of my kids goes forward. And then I notice kind of in the area where he was, there's this commotion going on. There's this uh, group of people that are gathering and they're yelling. They're, they're, they're worked up. So I kind of leave my post, which may not have been the best decision, but I was like, I got to go check this out. So I go over to this group of, of people, right? And I walk up close and man, they are yelling every prayer uh, that you possibly ever heard and everyone your grandmother ever prayed. I mean, they're just doing stuff. I'm like, what is going on? So I kind of make my way through the crowd and I notice there's a kid down on the ground. And to my horror, uh, it's the kid from my cabin. It was my camper. The first thing that goes through my mind is I'm going to be fired tomorrow. This is bad. You know, this is bad news. And I look closer and my camper, who's 15, who maybe weighs 100 pounds, uh, is a Latino kid from Chicago. Uh, there is a voice coming out of him that is not his voice. It's this guttural voice just erupting from within him. And when I heard that, I was terrified. And, and, and there's the, the leader of the camp is over with him. He played basketball at the University of Arkansas. He was a 6'9", kind of at least 300 pounds, like big man. And again, my guy, 15, maybe 100 pounds, right? So this huge, huge guy is kind of on top of him trying to keep the kid from hurting himself and hurting other people because there's this voice coming out of him and he's doing all this crazy stuff. And again, everybody's just praying everything, but nothing is seeming to work. I'm terrified. I, I've never seen anything like this. And I, and I, and I watch, and my, my guy goes from down here on the ground like this, like flat out, with a big 300-pounder on top of him, goes from flat out to this, into like a push-up. And you see the strength come out of him. I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is bad. I have no idea what to do. Again, my only discipleship is the movie The Exorcist, right? I'm looking for a Catholic priest somewhere. And this woman walks over, who's another one of the leaders of the camp, and she ran track at the University of Texas 
Uh, and she was very athletic. I think in this time she was probably in her maybe 30s or early 40s, not sure. Um, but man, there was just wisdom and authority when she taught. It was this, this deal that we read about. Like People would be like, whoa. That wasn't just someone kind of sharing some stuff. There's weight on what she said. So everybody's huge commotion all around. She walks up and is like, um, very, very quietly, very calmly, she gets down with him. And she begins to minister to him. She begins to speak to him. And it comes out that uh, this uh, kid, my, my guy, has a, a demon that is demonizing him out of a broken relationship he had with his stepfather. His stepfather abused him, and my camper had held on to anger and hatred and unforgiveness of his stepfather, understandably so, but it held on to this so much that it opened a door to him being demonized. And now there was this angry spirit that was marking his life. I could have told you uh, that he was just kind of a, an angry kid, but this level of anger that was coming out in the ministry time was far beyond human origin. Well, that comes out and she leads him in a time of repentance and forgiving his stepfather. And just like we read about in the scripture, when that happens, the kid all of a sudden, something goes out of him, voice is gone, strength is back to normal. He's back in his right mind. Everything's calm, except me. I'm freaking out. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world has happened here? It's amazing. He was restored and delivered. I didn't really know what to do with that, and they sent me with him back to the cabin that night. <laughs> and not a ton of coaching and, okay, what's going to happen now? He was fine. I was not. He was sleeping on the bunk bed above me. And again, all I've got is the exorcist, guys. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, he, this thing is going to come back during the night. He's going to reach around the bed. He's going to grab me. He's going to throw me across the room. So literally, I think I had this Bible then. I slept like this. I didn't know what to do. I, I was terrified, right? Just, just absolutely terrified. But it was amazing because I saw the power and the authority of Jesus set this little boy free, give him a new future and a new hope and a new way, and it wasn't this big, hyped-up show, but it really was the good and beautiful kingdom coming into his life. And that's the way the kingdom is, and we're gonna see uh, just over and over again Jesus bringing this type of power to demonized people. And we're gonna learn, as we go as a community, we're gonna learn and we're gonna grow in kind of our understanding of what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. As we encounter each scene, we'll take time to unpack it and to learn and to grow. Uh, but I want to invite you specifically, if you're here and you've got something kind of in your life, uh, you know, you're like, man, I need help with this. I think I might be uh, demonized. I want to invite you to our Freedom Weekend, May 4th and 5th, if we can pull that uh, slide up. May 4th and 5th, this is designed for you. And I want you to know, this idea is not just something for the people with major problems, right? In the early church, they actually, when you joined a church, there's writings that say everyone went through an exorcism, that everyone has areas in their life, as we come to know Jesus, that we need to be delivered from, right? So it's not a scary thing. It's not a thing to be like, oh man, that's for the real problem, people. Something that we all need so that we can walk like Jesus and we can function holy and fully in his kingdom. So I want to invite you to stand as we close today. Uh, we're going to 
Um, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. And the line in here where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's this prayer that, we're, we're, that Jesus wants us to have in our hearts. That as we go to our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our communities, that we would be kingdom carriers. That we would carry the good and beautiful kingdom of Jesus everywhere we go in the city. Uh, after we share, share this together, I uh, have a few words of people we want to minister to. So if our prayer and prophetic team can come forward. Uh, number one, if you have back pain in your L2 or L3, whatever L2 and L3 means in the area of the back. But if that's you, love to come forward. Believe God wants to minister to you. If someone has problems with their right knee, I would believe that God wants to heal today. And then someone, it's a little bit of an interesting one, but I believe it's applicable. Someone who got a haircut, but no one has mentioned anything about it, and it is an identity issue. And it's a bit of an interesting word, but it's a very powerful ministry time in the first service, and it's not directed at me. I think you guys know that. Anyway, <laughs> different story. But I'm going to lead us in this uh, prayer of saying the, the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May you be sent with power this week to see the kingdom of God come in your life, in your world, of the good and beautiful kingdom. You are dismissed. If you want prayer, ministry, come forward.